in ancient Israel, if you needed bread, you didn't go find it wrapped in plastic with an expiry date on it at the local supermarket. Most people would have grown their own wheat or barley and baked their own bread from the flour or bartered or traded with those who did. In other words, procuring bread was hard work and it was also less reliable for them than it is for most of us. They didn't have, after all, international shipping the same way that we do. For me, things are harder to come by here in Barbados than they were in Canada, but nevertheless, you can still get them, especially if you're prepared to pay. You can get what you want, even here in Barbados, because there are ships and planes coming in all the time. Of course, there was not a global economy like that at this time. Farmers would understand this intuitively better than the rest of us, but for the rest of us, it bears emphasizing here that these ancient Israelites, this crowd that Jesus fed, were used to living off the land, subject to the weather, and they ate bread by the sweat of their brows. There's a country song that describes living in an area where money grows in rows, and if it don't, you come broke. That was life in ancient Israel. People worked hard for bread today and worried about whether they would have bread tomorrow. So in this context, it's clear that Jesus wasn't just doing a parlor trick. Jesus wasn't just pulling a rabbit out of a hat, so to speak, nor was he simply telling someone which card they had pulled from the deck while he was blindfolded or looking the other way. Jesus was feeding hungry people who stood in constant need of daily bread, whose supply chain of daily bread was somewhat tenuous. He was likely feeding hungry kids whose parents had at at times put them to bed on an empty stomach because there just simply wasn't something to eat. He was likely feeding dads who had at times gone to bed with an empty stomach because they had given their kids what bread there was in the house so that their kids could eat. He was likely feeding at least some people who didn't pack a lunch because they didn't have a lunch to pack. So this helps us understand better why the people were, as it says in verse 15, about to come and take him by force to make him king. They wanted someone over them who could feed them day by day. They wanted to know that they would always be full. They didn't ever want to tell their kids again that there was no food tonight. Or that they couldn't come back for seconds. When Jesus fed the crowds, their bodies received a meal. But their hearts received hope. This man can give us breath. And so they want to make him king so that they'll always have breath. Can you relate? Remember that bread was more than a meal to these ancient Israelites. In their minds, the significance of Jesus feeding them was that he could give, was that Jesus was someone who could give them what they needed. Do you long for Jesus to give you what you need? 
Have you ever prayed for Jesus to provide a job for you? Provide a home for you? To heal a disease? Have you ever prayed, cried out even in Jesus' name to help you meet your monthly budget? Or to have more rain for your crops? Or for less rain for your crops? Have you ever gone to God in Jesus' name to ask for bread, as it were? My wife used to work for a parachurch organization in which their paradigm of ministry heavily involved meeting what they called felt needs. By this they meant the needs that people perceive themselves to have, irrespective of whether they are actual needs or primary needs. The needs that people perceive themselves to have are felt needs. And this organization focused on meeting felt needs. Because if people perceive themselves to have needs, and the parachurch organization meets those felt needs, then the recipients feel loved. But listen, Jesus didn't come primarily to meet your felt needs. One of the errors of the prosperity gospel is that it promises too much too soon. More on this later, but suffice it to say for now that God hasn't promised you a healthy and wealthy life here and now. And one of the errors of the prosperity gospel is that they tell you, if you have God's favor, yes, you're going to have a healthy and wealthy life now, here and now. So the prosperity preachers promise you more than God has. That's one error of the prosperity gospel. Another error of the prosperity gospel is that it assumes that what you feel you need here and now is what you actually need. In other words, the prosperity gospel assumes that your felt needs are your actual needs. That you actually need to be healed physically here and now. That you actually need more money in your bank account. That you actually need to feel fulfilled in your career. That you actually need a breakthrough. That you actually need some kind of victory. That you actually need whatever manner of prosperity it is that they're holding out to you. The prosperity gospel assumes that your felt needs are your actual needs and that if, here's the logic, if God cares about you, then He will meet your felt needs. But this is bogus. God does care for each and every one of His people. But His plan to prosper us, to give us hope and a future, often involves walking us through suffering and difficulty while meeting our most primary actual needs every step of the way. Or even in order to meet our most primary actual needs every step of the way. Sometimes we need suffering and difficulty along the way as part of the process of receiving the things that are most needful for us. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6 says, Now for a little while... 
if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials. So, the logic of that verse is, if now you have been grieved by various trials, it was, in some sense, what? Necessary. So, no, Jesus didn't come to meet your felt needs. And that's not the main point of this passage. Look at how Jesus fed the 5,000, the preachers will tell you. See, He cares about people and He gives them what they want. Bread. What they feel they need. Bread. For them it was bread. For you it's a breakthrough in your career. For them it was bread. For you it's a better marriage. For them it was bread. For you it's meeting your monthly budget. Whatever. That's not what this passage is about. That's not the primary idea here. The primary idea here is that whatever we actually need most day by day, God in Christ provides for us. Whatever we actually need, God in Christ provides for us. The feeding of the 5,000 here is called a sign in verse 14. Look at it. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, etc., etc. This is a sign. And a sign signifies something. This is what was signified by Jesus feeding the 5,000 here in our passage. Whatever we actually need. Remember, the bread wasn't a luxury. The bread was life. It wasn't a felt need. It was a need for these people. Whatever we actually need. Most, day by day, God in Christ provides for us. Not that God in Christ will make our wildest dreams come true. That's not the gospel. Not that God in Christ is on a mission to meet our felt needs. That is not the gospel. But rather that is whatever is most needful for us, we receive from God in Him. In the first place, we need... Righteousness to offer to God. You know why? Because when God created mankind, He put Him here, and God, obviously as the Creator, has authority over the creature to tell Him to do whatever He wants Him to do. And so Adam ought to have obeyed God first, simply just because he was a creature, and God is the Creator, and the creature owes the Creator obedience. But more than that, God entered into a covenantal relationship with Adam, and Adam's posterity, in other words, us. Such that if Adam obeyed, he would receive a reward on the basis of his obedience. But if Adam disobeyed, he would receive a penalty for his disobedience. And so Adam owed, not only by, mean, by virtue of being a creature, but also by virtue of being a creature in covenantal relationship to God. Adam owed God obedience, righteousness. And that covenant, as I said, wasn't just, didn't just include him, but included his posterity, which is us. So all humans everywhere owe God obedience, not merely because we're creatures, but also because we're creatures in a covenantal relationship to God. And so the first thing that we stand in need of is righteousness to offer to God. But we have none of our own. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Well, what about the most righteous among us? Or what about on my best days? All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. So the best that you can muster up, the best that I can muster up, and listen, the best that we can muster up together is filthy rags. We don't even have enough righteousness among us to offer up to God. Just as these people, this crowd, didn't have enough among them to muster up. One kid has five loaves and two fish. (laughs) But what are they among so many? What is is whatever little righteousness, (laughs) whatever little outward external obedience that we might find in the human race, what is this among so many? All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. But God in Christ has met our need. Because Jesus came and lived in obedience to God's law, doing what Adam in the first place should have done. And so God in Christ meets our need. Then we needed rescue from the penalty of sin. Because, okay, here is Christ's righteousness for me. But God still has a problem with me for my sin. So that demand of righteousness is met by Christ's righteousness offered up to God. But there's still a problem because there's a penalty owed by virtue of that covenant which Adam broke on behalf of his posterity. So that all of Adam's posterity are by nature under a curse, deserving of a penalty for their sin. And so we are not only in need of righteousness to offer up, which we should have offered up in the first place, But we're also in need of rescue from the penalty of our sin. And so, God, in Christ, provides what we need. Rescue from the penalty of our sin. Jesus came and after living that righteous life that we should have, died the death of the unrighteous. They made His grave with the wicked, the prophet tells us. He was numbered among the transgressors. Not for his own sin, but for mine. For the sins of all who would believe in him. God in Christ met that need. Then we needed our spiritual eyes opened to see what Christ has done. Unless a man be born again, he cannot... What? See can't even see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. Which is why you go out and you have such a clear, coherent gospel conversation with someone. And they're like, okay, I'll, I'll try harder to be a good person. And you're like, what? You missed it. You, com- you completely missed the point. Or they, re- or they get it intellectually, but they're like, ah, no thanks. And you're like, what? What do you mean, no thanks? You would rather go to hell than to heaven? You'd rather stay alienated from God than come to know Him? Or they're hostile. And they're like, they get it intellectually and they're like, you're a bigot. All of this is because, whatever these responses, it's all because they can't see the kingdom of God. If you could see it, it would be so compelling. It would be so clear. You're outside of it, but you can come into it by faith in Jesus Christ. Were men neutral, it would be an offer like the Godfather's offer. An offer that they couldn't refuse. Were men neutral. 
but they're not neutral. They're blinded, they're prejudiced toward God, toward the gospel by their sin. And we need God to overcome our blindness so that we can see the kingdom of God, so that we can put faith in this Christ Jesus who lived and died on behalf of sinners to offer up to God the righteousness that we owed Him and to receive in Himself the penalty that we're due. We wouldn't even come to put faith in Christ but for the grace of God meeting our need of spiritual enlightenment, spiritual awakening, spiritual quickening, regeneration, whatever you want to call it. And God in Christ has met that need. Then we need ongoing transformation. And we're actually going to be looking at that more tonight as I deal with Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. More on this tonight. But for now, suffice it to say that God in Christ has met our need for ongoing transformation. And He who began a good work in you is not going to drop you halfway. He will carry it through to completion. And then we need to be rescued from this present heaven and earth which is cursed by God. God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. So we need not only to be made new, but we need to live in a new place. Because otherwise, if we were somehow just resurrected in our glorified bodies to live on this earth forever, I don't know, global warming, global cooling, (laughs) the sun burning out, I don't know. But this ain't going to last forever in its present form. And so we need even this around us to be made new. And God has met that need in Christ Jesus. According to His promise, we await a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Whatever we need most, God has provided for and will provide for each and every one of His people. This is the significance of this sign. This is what the sign points to. As we sang earlier, Jesus is my life. Jesus is your life, Christian. That's what the sign means. You shouldn't read this and be like, oh look, Jesus gave bread to these people. I'm believing Him for a breakthrough in my career. That's not what the sign means. This sign is not fundamentally about comfort and satisfaction. It's not fundamentally about icing on the cake. It's about sustenance at its most basic level. Again, let me emphasize this point. Most of us here are eating three square meals a day. Most of us are adequately nourished. Most of us have safe places to sleep at night. Most of us have multiple sets of clothing to wear. Believe it or not, this means that we are all rich. On the global scale, we are all rich. There's a website called globalrichlist.com. And if you go to it and you type in your annual income, I think it's in US dollars, it will tell you the percentile. Believe you me, we are all rich. When we compare our standard of living, not only with other areas of the world at the present day, but with 
past civilizations, we come to realize that the modern West, and I'm not just talking about North America or Europe, I'm talking about the whole Western world, including the Caribbean, is one of the wealthiest civilizations in human history. And because we are so rich, the primary meaning of this metaphor of bread can be easily lost on us. We think that Jesus being the bread of life means that he's like delicious food that is tasty or satisfying. Like you show up somewhere for an early meeting in the morning and they have coffee and lo and behold, croissants that you can enjoy for breakfast. And Jesus, we think, is like saying something like, surprise, I'm here to make your life better. Right? It's... That he's saying he's like a croissant when you weren't expecting a croissant to be available for breakfast. We think that Jesus is saying something like he's a nice supplement to an already adequate diet. We think that Jesus is simply saying that if you eat and drink of him, he will satisfy your cravings and so improve your life. How often have you heard a sermon like this? You have a nice life. You know, but there's just that little something missing. If you would just receive Jesus, then just that little something that's missing would be there and you'd you'd be complete. How often have you heard a sermon like that? That sermon is operating on the paradigm that Jesus is a croissant that you weren't expecting, but it's a pleasant surprise. That Jesus makes your life a little bit better. It's good already, but if if you get Jesus, just that little something that's missing. Listen, Jesus is saying... That you will actually have no life without Him. That's what Jesus is saying. Because He is giving bread to hungry people without a good chain of supply for bread. Jesus is not bringing us to a decision point between having an okay life without Jesus or a better life with Him. Jesus is bringing us to a decision point of you will die without Him. Or you will have life with Him. That's what Jesus is signifying here in feeding the 5,000. Of course, we'll get to the end of John chapter 6. And there's lots and lots and lots to unpack when we get there. And I'm going to be revisiting this point over the next few weeks a few times. But today we're just looking at the sign. And we need to understand properly what it signifies. And it doesn't signify that Jesus came to meet your felt needs. It signifies that Jesus came primarily to meet your most ultimate needs. But does that mean that He came to do the bare minimum? To get us out of a spiritual crisis, for example, but to leave us halfway satisfied? Look at verses 12 and 13. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten If this is a sign, what's the significance of the leftovers? 
and is this. Jesus meets our actual needs in abundance. We ought not to preach the gospel primarily like this. Are you lonely? Come to Jesus and you will find a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We ought not to preach the gospel primarily like this. Are you struggling to manage your money? Become a disciple of Jesus and take His yoke upon you and learn from Him. His word is full of wisdom for you. We ought not primarily to preach the gospel like this. Are you tired? Come and find rest for your soul. You can stop striving. We ought not to preach the gospel like this. Are you addicted to drugs and alcohol? Or even just a hedonistic way of life in general? Come to Jesus and find that He is more satisfying. All of the aforementioned statements are true, you know. I hope you caught that as I made my way through. All of the aforementioned statements are true, and I would happily use each and every one of them myself in the right context. I didn't say that we ought never to say such things. I said that we ought not to preach the gospel primarily like this. And one reason is because it would distort the gospel to do so. Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You realize that more and more as life goes on. You realize that everyone that you counted on, everyone that you loved, everyone that loves you, can only go so far. But there is a friend, bless God, who sticks closer than a brother. And His Word is full of wisdom for you. I can't tell you how many times that little verse that I learned when I was a child comes back to me over and over again and finds me saying a resounding Amen. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So true. And the more you walk by that lamp and by that light, the more thankful you are for it. Jesus' yoke is easy and His burden is light. His commands are not burdensome. You will find rest for your souls and you will cease endlessly striving in Him. And you will find Him more satisfying, as we sing sometimes, than all the world affords today. But Jesus didn't come merely or primarily so that you wouldn't be lonely. So that you'd have something better to do on the weekend than drink Banks beer. So that your anxious heart would be at ease. So that you could manage your money better according to the principles that we find in Proverbs. Jesus came first and foremost to save you from sin and reconcile you to God. To give you life in the place of death. But make no mistake, 
after doing so, He does become a friend to you. He does become a teacher to you. And He does become all satisfying to you. And one day, because of Him, all things will be made new. Including your body. You will be healed. And you won't be broke anymore one day. I'm not saying here and now, but nobody, nobody's going to be in heaven begging on the street corner or stressing how they're going to make ends meet. What's going to happen at the end of the month? If worst comes to worst, you could just, I guess, grab a jackhammer and deal with the streets of gold. <laughs> all that the prosperity gospels preachers, all that the prosperity gospel preachers dangle in front of you now will pale in comparison <clears throat> to what will be yours in Him then. Listen. In Jesus Christ, there are basketfuls to spare. In Jesus Christ, there are basketfuls to spare. Jesus does not provide meagerly. When he interprets the sign later in the chapter, saying, I am the bread of life. Right? Essentially, that's the meaning of the sign. I am the bread of life. God is in me, giving you bread from heaven. Jesus doesn't mean that he's like a medieval prisoner's stale bread and musty water. That's not what it means. When I say that first and foremost, primarily, the meaning of this sign is that He gives you life, not better life. That doesn't mean He gives you merely life. Because He gives you life, and then some. Twelve basketfuls more. Jesus provides abundantly. The significance of the basketfuls left over is that He will give us what we actually need in abundance. At every step of the way, God will determine what you actually need. And He will give it to you in abundance. You might say at this point, I'm just fooling around with semantics. Why the emphasis on actual needs versus felt needs? Especially if God will in Christ eventually provide... For what we feel we need here and now. Can it be so wrong to focus primarily on other aspects or benefits of the gospel than simply sin and salvation from sin? If we don't outright deny sin and salvation. In other words, isn't it just to some extent a matter of preference what we focus on, what we emphasize? In other words, some Christians and some churches focus on sin and salvation. And some Christians and some churches focus on the felt needs of the people in the pews. Having a better marriage according to the principles of God's word. Right? Not being lonely because Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Right? Some churches emphasize the one, some churches emphasize the other. To each his own. In closing, let me give you three reasons. Why it matters that we emphasize 
that Jesus being the bread of life means primarily that we will literally die without Him, but that we will live with Him. One is because, as I've already said, Jesus, pardon me, one is because I've already said a wrong emphasis is a gospel distortion. And I think it goes without saying that we ought not to distort the gospel. Like if we framed it like this, well, some churches don't distort the gospel and some churches do, to each his own. I think we would, I think we would recognize that that's... We can, we don't, I don't have to prove that premise, okay? Let me illustrate this point. Wives, how would you feel if your husband's nose grew like Pinocchio's? One, one or two feet... I'm not talking about when he lies, I'm just talking about this afternoon. He lays down for a nap, and when he grows, when he wakes up, that thing sprouted. And now it's like a foot or two long. Or husbands, how would you feel if your wife's eyes, when she woke up from her afternoon nap, were as big as an egg yolk in the pan, or, 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 or worse, the whole frying pan? If... If I may assume your reaction, that you would prefer not, (laughs) let me ask you, why does it matter? He still has a nose, after all. Why does it matter? She still has eyes, after all. Right? The gospel is still there, even in these churches that emphasize felt needs. The gospel is still there. Why does it matter? We understand intuitively that the wrong proportion of something is a distortion of something. So let us not distort the gospel, but present it in its proportion. And primarily, the gospel is about sin and salvation from sin, and not our felt needs. So even if Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother... That's not the main thrust of Scripture. And even if living according to the principles of God's Word is better for your finances or better than your marriage, better for your marriage, that's not the main emphasis of Scripture. The main emphasis of Scripture is that Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. So in an effort not to distort the Gospel, it does matter that we present things in their proportion. The second reason why it matters that we emphasize that Jesus, the bread of life, means primarily that we will die without Him and live with Him. The second reason is that Jesus says explicitly, I am the bread of life, not I am the bread of a better life. And so the words of Scripture bind us to this approach. Jesus is saying, I am the bread which gives life, not the bread which gives a better life. So if Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and we say, ah, what you mean is you give us a better life. Jesus says, no, no, I am the bread of life. You say, ah, so we have life already without you, but if we want to make it better, we receive you. No, no, no. He says, I am the bread of life. Jesus didn't come primarily to improve your life. 
the only hope that you have for any life at all is in Jesus. And that's the point when he says, I am the bread which gives life. Focusing on things like the gospel addressing your loneliness, biblical principles as wise ways of living, and so on and so forth, goes against, or focusing rather, sorry, focusing on this metaphor addressing things like that, how Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, or biblical principles of living, goes against the explicit words of scripture. Because that's not what Jesus says. Thirdly, there's an evangelistic reason. Focusing in our evangelism on things like the gospel addressing your loneliness or coming to become a disciple of Jesus means a better, wiser way of living according to biblical principles or whatever. That leaves room, that approach leaves room for people then to reject the gospel on the basis that they're not that lonely. (laughs) Or they're managing their money fine. (laughs) Thank you. I don't really need the book of Proverbs. I'm doing all right. Right? Or my my marriage is okay. I'm happy with my marriage. Thank you. I appreciate the... um, you know, the service that Jesus offers, but I'm not in need of it. Right? If if someone comes offering to wash your car, but you had it washed just earlier in the day, you just say, no thanks, I don't need it. So if we reduce the gospel to just that, you say, well, I don't need it. Or, conversely, focusing on those sorts of things, draws out the lonely draws out those whose marriages are struggling draws out those who are looking for better ways to manage their money but doesn't necessarily draw them to Christ look at look at all of the ways out there that you could all of the systems out there for managing your money better there's apps trying to convince you to buy the app and install the app because it will help you with your money the gospel just becomes one more thing to help you manage your money. Or look at all the ways out there that our society is trying to address this need of loneliness. The gospel becomes just one more thing to try to address loneliness. And sometimes lonely people or people that don't know how to manage their money might be superficially sucked in by that kind of evangelism. But they're never converted to Christ. They just downloaded the app to give it a try. So we're not actually drawing people to faith in Christ. To repent of their sins. To lean wholly and entirely on Him. To rescue them. To reconcile them to God. And so forth. That's not the conversion that happens when that sort of evangelism is successful. So we need to go out and we need to confront people with their actual needs. Regardless of whether or not they feel their needs... They may still have actual needs. So people might say, I'm doing fine without Jesus. And we need to say, no, you're not. We don't just move on to the next house and say, okay, I guess they don't need a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We say, well, actually, what are you going to do about your sin? 
You understand it? You focus there. Right? And I realize I just gave you three reasons, but what I realized is I actually had four, but they were just categorized under three headings. So fourthly, and finally, as I said in conclusion a little bit too long ago, dare I say, fourthly and finally, the most important reason that we focus on sin and salvation is that it encourages us to trust God's provision. Focusing on the meaning of this parable as, or pardon me, not this parable, this sign, as that Jesus provides what is most needful for us, namely salvation from our sin, as opposed to interpreting this sign as being about felt needs. If we are the experts in what our needs are, If you are the expert on what your needs are. And if your felt needs then are assumed to be your actual needs. You don't even ask the question, do I really need this? You just assume. Well, obviously I feel I need it, so I need it. If you are the expert in what your needs are. If you assume that your felt needs are your actual needs. Then you may constantly wonder about and even doubt God's care for you. He doesn't give me what I want or what I feel I need. Therefore, he doesn't care about me. Our thought process goes. When we understand, however, that God is not primarily concerned with what we feel we need or what we want, but what we actually need most, and then we see the length that he has gone to in order to address our actual need all the way to the cross that's how far he's gone to address our actual need then we are stirred actually to trust him more a God that cares enough about us to send his son to Calvary to give us what we actually need can be trusted to provide what is actually needful every step of the way. You see how that goes psychologically? I need a promotion at work. I need a promotion at work. And God hasn't given it to me, therefore He doesn't care about me. You see how that encourages you to trust God less? But I need life. And Jesus is the only one who can give me life. And He's done it by means of His life, death, resurrection, His Spirit. And we await His return where He consummates that rescue. That's what I need. And Jesus has provided it. God in Christ has given me what I actually need. If He's done that, then I can trust that if I do really need this promotion at work, He'll give it to me. And if I don't, He won't, and I can be okay with that. Interpreting this sign properly has ramifications that we're not just twisting it to make it mean whatever we want it to mean. 
but we're reading it in its context. I'm trying to understand what the original hearers would have heard when Jesus says to them, interpreting the sign, I am the bread of life. Understanding how bread functioned in their life as opposed to how it functions in our life. All of this helps us see that what Jesus meant was not that He came to make your life better, but that He came simply to give you life at all. Whatever life you have can only come from Jesus. Without Him, you're dead. Understanding this passage properly helps us understand that that's the meaning of it. And it's not just semantics. It's not just an indifferent matter. Some churches focus on felt needs. Some churches focus on sin and salvation. Whatever. I just gave you the reasons. It's a gospel distortion. The explicit words of this text bind us to that interpretation. There's an evangelistic motive. And understanding it this way actually ought to stir up our trust and our confidence in a God who is actually committed to giving us the bread that we need. The life that we need. He's done that in Christ. He's doing that in Christ. We have the bread we need in Christ Jesus. Understanding it this way helps us and encourages our hearts to trust Him more.